I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A year before his death, in one of his most revered speeches, Martin Luther King Jr. named three main evils plaguing America. Racism, poverty, and war. Decades later, the fight for black lives unfolded into Portland streets in a fashion few could have imagined, transforming small city blocks into daily battlegrounds. As the Fed Wars continued, protesters fortified, numbers swelled, and Portland grabbed the nation's attention. Out-of-state media flew into town, searching for juicy headlines. Likewise, a network of opportunist live streamers traveled to Portland, hoping to capture what many activists dubbed riot porn. Video of police gassing, snatching, rushing, beating, berating, and arresting Portlanders. And alongside all this, less obvious but much more impressive, an infrastructure of resistance began to grow. Angry chanting, signs, and tearful demands were augmented by mutual aid. More than a month in, Portlanders learned that if they were going to last against the paramilitaries of both the president and the mayor, they were going to have to take better care of each other. For the cops, things had gotten pretty routine at this point. Stop criminal activity, protect property. But federal escalation begged the question, would Portland back down? Despite grievous bodily harm, unmarked federal snatch vans, and overwhelming use of riot munitions, Portlanders continued to fill the streets past the 50th straight day of protests. And the answer to the question, will Portland back down, became increasingly clear. No. Here's my colleague in getting exposed to chemical weapons, Elaine Kinchin, to continue the story. The battle against Trump's feds gained Portland nationwide notoriety in the summer of 2020, but many longtime activists on the scene, like Max Smith, considered the whole fight to be, at best, something of a distraction. A fight in the feds. That wasn't what we were here for. You know, fighting fight the feds was like some shit that kind of, it was like, I used to call it the Grand Theft Auto's a side mission. Like, this, is, this has nothing to do with what we're supposed to be doing right now, but we have to complete this to get back in the game, you know? Yeah. And it was really weird. And it, I, th- I think 
at that moment, I really realized that the distraction was intentional and that this was all getting just diverted to become like a, like a Trump like a campaign ad, you know, he's going to come through and support these police unions. And this is his big commercial for it. So it was a very, uh, I felt like it was a frustrating part of the a protest because a, it was really a dangerous and people were really getting hurt and kidnapped and all that kind of weird stuff. And then on top of that, it wasn't the fight that I wanted to, you know, to be fighting, but it was, but it's the fight that brings out a lot of people. So a, a, a very uh, contrasting and confusing time for sure. Thousands would attend each night and the atmosphere began to resemble a strange nightly festival ending in the wee hours of the morning with assaults by federal officers and clouds of poison gas. A man with a gas mask and a hockey stick showed up one night to knock canisters away. Teams of people with lacrosse sticks followed. When lines of federal agents pushed forward launching gas grenades, walls of protesters would now regularly toss the rounds back into and behind the fed lines, as protesters behind them used leaf blowers to direct the gas back at the courthouse and squads of medics in the rear treated people as they rotated in and out of the front lines. The federal courthouse had many of the windows of its facade destroyed by fireworks and projectiles, and the clouds of gas rendered the bottom seven stories of the building uninhabitable. Assaults on the fence were an integral part of nightly protests. Erected at a cost of $200,000 and later reinforced with concrete barriers, it was repeatedly dismantled by protesters and piled in front of courthouse doors. The city, too, wanted the fence gone. It was blocking a bike lane without permits. City attorneys sent a cease and desist letter to the federal government. Portland City Commissioner Chloe Udaly stated, The fence is an abuse of public space and a threat to the traveling public, and that this illegal action will not be tolerated in our community. Udaly leveled a fine of $500 against the federal government for every 15 minutes that the fence remained on city property, or $48,000 a day. By August, the fines topped $500,000. Protest regular Creme Brulee describes the new turn in the protests as resembling a festival. Uh, I think, like, Fed Night is what it made it go from, like, this is interesting to, like, this is a full-blown, like, theatrical like, spectacle. Um, the actual spectacle. That's what that but it was huge. And I don't know. It was <laughs> I, I feel like when I'm talking about all this stuff, I feel like I'm having so much fun with it was so much fun, honestly. The that's nice. Like it was, you know, there was some scary, traumatic shit that happened, and I was genuinely scared for my whole ass life a couple times. But like, I don't know. It's, it, I, I tell everybody it felt like a music festival where you also fought cops. Does that make sense? Because if you were just like at the JC, you could be at the JC. You could back the JC. Courthouse, you like elk, you have riot ribs, you know, some don't uh, you know what I mean? You walk by, you see the same people, you go, oh shit, it's bad. Uh, I was drugs. So it really felt like a music festival and it was a lot of fun. Um, you know, I guess it also scary the energy and the tension, you know, super high as uh, the fence. The, the fence period, like early fence days were like we're shaking the fence. That's specifically my favorite period, just because everyone was just so irate at that point. Like, why did they put up a fence? And then we, we came back with like lawnmower, not lawnmowers, leaf blowers. They came back with leaf blowers. And there was one night 
like I saw like multiple people with circular saws working on the fence, and I just really love the ingenuity of a great time for shield walls. That was a great time. Someone threw uh threw a tear gas canister back over the fence across it. It's going to be me talking to my kids in like 50 years. One of the things that became clear early into the protests, even before the feds came, is that if you didn't have a gas mask, you were going to need one. COVID had already given the world a bit of a post-apocalyptic feel between the looming danger of the virus and everyone being behind masks. But the growing number of respirators at actions accentuated that. The immense quantity of gas that the federal forces used made respirators and gas masks a necessary piece of equipment. And as the summer dragged on, protesters began mobilizing to get respirators into the hands of all that needed them. 16-year-old Ariana Moorhead says that she got her first gas mask over the summer. Um, I just got it through mutual aid, you know, the community, bringing everything, everybody together. Um, we, Parties for Freedom actually had a couple gas masks donated to them, so that's where I got mine from. Uh, the helmet... I got from another um, group I organized with, which is Our Streets PDX. And then I forgot where I got my goggles from, but yeah, just, you know, the community. After a few bouts with police and right-wing militiamen, her uniform had graduated. Now every night she went out, she was ready from head to toe in an outfit she never expected she would need. The first couple nights was really bad. The tear gas, and I'm like, okay, my immune system can't do this. Like, I just had milk to save my eyes from tear gas. But no, um, I had goggles, a helmet, a gas mask. Uh, and a lot of people have been wanting to get me a bulletproof vest, but I haven't gotten one yet, you know, just in case, because I'm pretty known by a lot of white supremacists. So it's kind of triggering for me. Um... Like I said, I've gotten death threats. Not sent to my house, thank God. Or not like, not thank God, but like still, like I haven't gotten any sent to my house, but I've gotten some through my GoFundMe. I've had some sent to my number. I had to change my number and everything. Um, I've had some sent over um, email, social media. It's uh, crazy. So I just need to be, you know, safe at all times. But yeah, right? Gives like helmet, goggles, face mask, pretty much. Max Smith describes needing to get better gear as the violence from federal forces grew more intense. The first thing was like, oh shit, I need equipment. <laughs> <laughs> I got a helmet and a face shield and got shot in the face like a day later. So, you know, I saw on video, I was watching Dre's feed when he got hit in the head um, with a, a gas canister uh, and lacerated his skull. So I started seeing like, oh, People are getting hurt out here. I had actually saw, uh, uh, what's his name? Chris, the uh, taser face. I had seen him the day before he got beat. And I was with a buddy of mine. We were like, that, that guy is huge. Who is this guy over here? We were like just talking about how big this guy was. And the next day I see him on the news getting his ass beat, you know? And I'm like, wow, like they're really beating everybody up out here. And there were thousands of people out there. And people were like just being massively, like just beat in mass. And that's the thing. And people didn't have masks or anything. We were just getting tear gassed and going to the corner and walking to Sixth Avenue and getting our, our faces uh, flushed out and walking back down again. You know, it, 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 I remember the solidarity being crazy, but I also remember thinking this is not what the hell we're here for. Another activist also describes the process of gearing up. Uh, the first night that I went out to the Justice Center at you know, the original fence. I had on a pair of jeans, boots, a sweatshirt, and a hat. And, you know, that went from 
that night when it was raining and then on my birthday, actually, which was June 30th, um, my dad texted me and said that he f- spotted me on a live stream because I was wearing like a plaid shirt and a pair of like light colored jeans. And then that was kind of when it clicked for me that like, oh, OK, this is why people are consistently wearing black down here. Like you sh- don't want to be recognizable even though I've never, you know, thrown anything or lit anything on fire, or tagged anything, like, you know, just not being able to spot someone is, you know, it has its values. Um, and it went from, you know, jeans and a sweatshirt to needing a respirator and goggles and then to needing a vest, a bulletproof vest, a helmet, you know, all of the different gear that we've needed to make sure that we just protect ourselves It's not about us weaponizing. It's not about us buying a bunch of guns when we're, you know, to carry around when we're down at the protests. It's not about that. It's about making sure that we don't die and that we don't get hurt. I was there the night that uh, Donovan was shot. Like, I was the person that ran across the park to go get the medics. And that was a huge awakening moment. Like, I saw brain fluid come out of his nose, you know? Like... That's a that's a big moment to know. Like, oh, okay, we should probably make sure that that doesn't happen to a bunch more of us. <laughs> Keeping people breathing became integral to the protest. And at the end of July, as the gas intensified, Team Raccoon worked to get filters to the protesters that needed them. We got uh, a little bit of money from mutual aid donations. And we were wondering what, because park cleans are pretty low cost, you know, trash bags, trash grabbers, it doesn't cost a lot of money to maintain that. So we were wondering, like, what do we do with this money that will really help our community? And we were noticing the air quality in Lounsdale and Chapman getting worse and worse and worse because of the tear gas and the chemical munitions every night, even just walking through there during the day, you wanted to put your respirator on at the end of July. So we were connected to some researchers who wanted to keep a certain level of anonymity. And we decided the best way to do that was through us. We could accept filters from the protest community and we could give them to the researchers. The researchers could conduct their studies in the privacy that they want. And we could use mutual aid money to facilitate that. So that's how it started. Um, we were able to locally source respirators through a local company. Um, and to start, I think we got about four cases of filters and then started getting respirators after the fact to kind of like both keep people safe and promote like the filter exchange. If you don't have a respirator, now you do. Now you can participate in the filter exchange later on. And then there's another data point for our scientists. So... We were already set up doing the respirators, doing the filter exchange program. We had a lot sitting around. And on the 100 days in Ventura Park, it was a big event. And I was not there that night, but I did watch it from the live streams. And it was horrifying. As Trump's troops catapulted Portland into the national spotlight, cameras descended on the city. For more than a month, the protests had been covered by a small group of local reporters. Suddenly, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and every major news network were crowding around the federal courthouse on a nightly basis. Right around the time the Fed War started, 
a federal judge passed a temporary restraining order banning federal agents from attacking marked press. Whether this stopped any brutality is up for debate. The Press Freedom Tracker statistics suggest the Portland press were assaulted more often than press in any other city in 2020. What the restraining order did was explode the number of people who went out with cameras to live stream and film. The sheer number of people with cameras became an issue for many activists. At times, it was physically challenging just to maneuver around the courthouse. So much space was being taken up by people marked press. All this documentation also caused a problem for protesters taking illegal direct action against federal agents and property. The flood of cameras amounted to constant live surveillance from every conceivable angle. Black block and umbrellas helped to shield people, but there was no perfect solution. Direct action was hampered. Midway through the Fed War, the Oregonian, a local paper, was able to get a journalist inside the federal courthouse. They took a picture inside the command center, which featured a large computer monitor showing numerous live stream feeds of the protests. This convinced many committed activists that streamers were their enemy, and the fact that live stream footage was used in federal charging documents seemed to support that. However, the matter was not that simple. Early live streams of police violence had played a major role in getting thousands of Portlanders out into the streets. Over and over again, we heard stories from activists who first learned how to handle tear gas or who were radicalized to start coming out because they watched streams. Federal law enforcement clearly used live streams for intelligence as well, but it's also very possible they made certain the Oregonian took a picture of their wall of live streams because they saw the streams as a major avenue by which protesters recruited more numbers and built public sympathy. Whatever the truth, that Oregonian article convinced several members of the press to stop live streaming and to move to more carefully posting short videos of the action. As a result, live streaming was increasingly done by newbies who had flooded into Portland seeking easy cash. The streamer apocalypse would continue as people brought gimbals and started plugging their cash app every five minutes on stream. It should be noted, there were also a number of Portlanders who slapped press onto their helmet in the hope that they wouldn't get beat up as much, which some might call a damning indictment of the state's use of force. We crooked. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily, as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. 
Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. Came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the Fed war raged on, one local critic was especially vocal about the optics of the protests. NAACP Portland Chapter President Pastor E.D. Mondain described the protests as devolving into white spectacle in a widely circulated Washington Post op-ed. Quote from the article, What are Antifa and other leftist agitators achieving for the cause of black equality? The Mall of Moms, while perhaps well-intentioned, ends up redirecting attention away from the urgent issue of murdered black bodies, he stated, before asking Portlanders to vacate the streets and instead to begin fighting at schools, city councils, and other governments. Now, while he also called for the feds to leave, Pastor Mondain's call for Portlanders to pull out of the streets drew the ire of many organizers on the ground. It also earned mundane airtime on national news outlets, which only ended when a lengthy expose later that fall revealed that he had been alleged of engaging in sexual, mental, and emotional abuse by nearly a dozen members of his church. Now, since the 4th of July, one of the regular and most revered sites at the protest was Riot Ribs, a free pop-up barbecue food cart. Riot Ribs was so beloved in Portland that even local politicians who had been negative about the protests were hard-pressed to say a single bad word about them. The restaurant had started operations the night of July 4th, thanks to a former Black Panther named Lorenzo. Riot Ribs quickly became a large-scale operation, feeding protesters and helping the local homeless population. After a couple of weeks, the operation expanded into clothing donations, a large medical tent, resume help, and haircuts. The ribs made local dining news, and protesters would often wait in line through clouds of tear gas to get them. They were pretty darn good. Volunteers cleaned the park and supplied equipment to protesters and again to the local houseless population. Morgan, currently with Team Raccoon, who volunteered at Riot Ribs, describes some of the work that they would do. Well, so the park clean itself um, for volunteers uh, was basically just um, show up. We have trash grabbers. You get to keep a pair of gardening gloves um, so you have something to protect your hands. We have sanitizer, masks, anything that anybody would need. And that would just focus on picking up litter around the park. But myself and a couple of um, people that were doing with Riot Ribs every day, we took the uh, 
the biggest hits on the bathrooms. <laughs> um, even at one point, um, like during park cleans, I would have volunteers picking up litter and picking up trash. But one thing I would go and do is I would get cat litter and put cat litter down behind the bathrooms, which is where people were peeing usually. Um, it was getting to be a sanitation issue. So what we were doing was we were putting cat litter down and then scooping it away when it got used and then putting fresh litter down. So myself and a couple of people from Riot Ribs were really doing the majority of that dirty work. Um, and volunteers were um, doing basically litter cleanup and just general maintenance. Feds, however, had a different view of the operation. While the rain of tear gas and munitions seemed largely indiscriminate, volunteers at Riot Ribs were regularly pelted with rubber bullets and even arrested. An early morning sweep at Chapman and Lounsdale Squares even saw police booting houseless people from the respective parks, seizing all of Riot Ribs' equipment and arresting nine people, some of whom had helped run the cart. During the raids, federal forces would pepper spray the grills and ruin donated equipment. In response, volunteers would dutifully take the ruined lit grills and dump them over the fence around the federal courthouse. One night, during a federal rush, all of the donated medical supplies were sprayed with mace. This, of course, ruined them. Every time Riot Ribs was targeted and its crew arrested, its equipment destroyed, more donations would come in, new people would come over to volunteer, and new equipment would be, you know, provided. In just a couple of weeks, the effort, which had started as just a one-man operation, had raised more than $300,000 to keep going. But just as quickly as the love came, there were new questions about the group's operations. In fact, both Wall of Moms and Riot Ribs soon faced sharp growing pains as new money and spotlights of attentions bred creeping suspicion among some in the activist community, and even doubts about safety. Courtney, who had started out protesting with Mall of Moms, described the night out with them that convinced her to quit. Yeah. So um, that night in particular, I know that that was the first night that actually moms got arrested. Uh, there was one mom in particular that, like, she got arrested, but then she also got her head. Like, I don't know if they shot her directly in the head, but that's when she, like, had her head busted open. So throughout that night, I was like, this is just not, this is just not right. Like, I don't understand. They have, like, this, these Facebook pages and these Twitters and all this kind of stuff to, like, communicate things with people. And nothing was communicated in a way for, like, to pre mentally prepare these women when they show up. Um, and so that just, throughout the night, I was just so annoyed with all of that. And I was like, you know what, like, I'm not going to wear, oh, towards the end of the night, my friends and I actually had black shirts on underneath, and we, like, literally took our shirt, our yellow shirts off, and we're like, we're not doing this anymore. Most Fed War nights followed a similar pattern. Huge crowds would gather, they would yell and throw things over the fence or damage the fence until the feds came out in force and pushed the crowd back. Then the feds would go back inside, the crowd would reform, and the cycle would repeat itself until there was no one left. Midway through all of this, Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler went out and stood in the tear gas with protesters. On national media, his tear gassing was portrayed as bravely standing with his city against federal overreach. The people actually protesting in downtown Portland felt very different. Ted was heckled constantly. His bodyguard had to keep people away from him. And as he was leaving, horribly tear gassed, activists dumped bags of spent riot munitions that Wheeler's cops had fired at them onto the ground in front of him. 
More than anything, most protesters seemed to enjoy watching Ted suffer after he had caused such pain for all of them. Courtney continues on about that night. So the next night was the night that Ted came out. And we ended up deciding, like, we aren't going to come with Wall of Moms anymore because there had been already, like, some infighting on their pages or whatever. And so um, we just wanted nothing to do with it anymore at that point because of the miscommunication or, I mean, lack of communication that there was. And so when Ted came out, that's when, like, it definitely the numbers had multiplied multiply from Wall of Moms. And, again, I don't think that they prepared anyone for what was going on. I mean, I can't, you can't, like, I, that's not probably as, I don't know how accurate I am with that, but I had still remained on, like, the Facebook pages and have been, like, looking at things and checking to see if anybody was, like, communicating what to expect. So then when they showed up, there was, like, a, so many of them and then Ted was there and then throughout like their the speeches that were going on and things like that they I guess somebody that was speaking on the mic had told them to tell the moms to go home because they didn't want to have a photo opportunity or opportunity with Ted so it wasn't communicated enough to the hundreds of moms that were there. And then while Ted was out, that's when they started gassing everybody. Well, apparently they had told the moms to leave, but there were like hundreds of moms left behind that had like no, nothing. They had like things from like hydration station and the medics and like, you know, some swimming goggles and, you know, paper masks and things like that. They didn't have, like, they weren't prepared, obviously, for, like, with full face, like, gas masks or respirators or things like that. And so she basically had abandoned all of these moms and had posted a video on the Facebook thing saying, wall of moms, you need to leave. Like, we're not giving Ted Wheeler the opportunity to take a photo of us. Immediately after, that's when they started gassing. And there were hundreds of moms screaming, running around Chapman Square. And their, like, leader, Beth, just left them. And so the rest of the protesters were there, like, taking care of these women that were frontlining it while, like, Beth had dipped out and had gone. And so that's when it kind of, like, started the downfall of Wall of Moms was because... Later on, people didn't realize because nobody's, like, checking their Facebook while they're out there, like, waiting to get gassed by the feds. And, like, the next, when they get home, they see that, like, Beth had told everyone to leave. Demetria Hester started taking to the streets during the Fed War. She explains her perspective on what happened with the Mall of Moms. Um, it was beautiful. Um, it was with the uh, um, Wall of Moms, but... Um, the person who created Wall of Moms, she was a white privileged um, mom, and she tried to use black women to um, to pro- ride on our backs about promoting herself and for it to be some kind of promotion and not for Black Lives Matter. It was all for a photo shoot and to be popular. And the moms were so disgusted by how she was trying to parade them instead of being uh, down there to fight for Black Lives Matter. And the moms saw that. So when they saw 
that she was trying to capitalize on Black Lives Matter also, they were disgusted. So me being a part of who I am, I took all the moms that were not white supremacy moms trying to be the saviors and made uh, Moms United for Black Lives um, because of the fact that the person, Bev Bidem, uh, she was trying to capitalize on black lives. She didn't care about black lives or the mom. She just wanted to do it for a photo op. And she thought she was going to come down there and save the day. So it was beautiful um, for me to see so many people out for Black Lives Matter, but it was so disgusting to see that what we've been fighting for that um, Bev Vitamin came in and tried to capitalize on that, but we had to quickly turn that around. The Wall of Moms founder, Bev Barnum, claimed to have the blessings of a seasoned activist group, Don't Shoot Portland. Her early fumblings led Don't Shoot to step in and help guide both Wall of Moms and Riot Ribs in mid-July. Almost immediately, what had been purely positive stories nosedived into something more muddled. Riot Ribs disbanded before a full transfer of leadership could even happen, and the story of this is very complicated. There were allegations from of abuse from a former member of Riot Ribs, one of the people who helped cook there, and the whole situation left a lot of people scratching their heads. The center of the rift seems to have focused around an imposter who started claiming to represent Riot Ribs in order to draw donations to himself. This person reportedly threatened several members of Riot Ribs and several other protesters with a firearm on multiple occasions. The situation grew so messy and so violent that the old Riot Rib staff departed, using the money that they had raised to buy several vans and go deliver ribs to protests around the country. The imposter Riot Ribs continued to operate and continued to threaten people with deadly weapons on occasion. The situation with Wall of Moms was if not a little more normal than at least involved less of an armed coup. After Don't Shoot was given control of the group, they gave Demetria Hester admin control of the organization's now massive Facebook page, and Don't Shoot Portland and Wall of Moms even entered into a joint lawsuit against the Department of Homeland Security for their use of excessive force, their violations of free speech, all of the terrible stuff that they'd been doing. Shortly after this suit was announced, what had seemed to be a strong, united front fell apart. Wall of Moms founder Bev Barnum began filing paperwork to register the group as a nonprofit. This move set up a series of alarms, leading Don't Shoot to question if the move was to profit off of the Black Lives Matter movement. Bev pushed back. Her goal, she said, was to protect protesters from federal agents, not the BLM movement. For her, Wall of Moms was something of a business. A line was drawn. Don't Shoot split from the two-week-old Wall of Moms and founded a new black-led group called Moms United for Black Lives, this one led by Demetria Hester. We know the whole situation is very confusing, and trust us, no one who was there at the time had a super great understanding of what was actually happening with either the Wall of Moms or with Riot Ribs. It was a confusing time, and everything that happened there was, was very muddled, not just by all of the different people involved, but by the constant clouds of tear gas and trauma that enveloped everything. As the city tried to present a united front against Trump's agents and the Portland Police Bureau, the growing rifts internally among protesters threatened to derail resistance altogether. A question began to loom above the clouds of gas. Had the fight become more about Donald Trump and his agents than the movement for black lives? The answer would become critical in the unfolding days of the protest. We crooked. Oh,
I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily, as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. Came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Fed war reached its conclusion in the closing days of July. Oregon Governor Kate Brown entered talks with the White House to negotiate reducing the presence of federal troops. On the ground, things had fallen into yet another pattern. In the afternoon, a crowd would gather around the Justice Center and courthouse to sing and listen to speeches. As night fell, thousands would surround the courthouse, waiting for the feds to inevitably begin shooting people. One of the last really big Fed nights was July 25th. Over a thousand people marched all the way from North Portland to the courthouse, where there were already thousands of people gathered. The sight upon arrival was a familiar one. Moms in yellow standing behind people with shields deflecting canisters and pepper balls, leaf blowers pushing gas back behind the fence, and people with heat-resistant gloves tossing canisters over the barrier like a sport. (laughs) 
At this point, Portland was getting very good at counteracting tear gas. In fact, they'd almost perfected the art. Some feds got dumped with pink paint early in the night, and they retreated back into the courthouse. And with the absence of the feds, people were more free to tamper with the fence. Occasionally, there would be sparks from an angle grinder, slowly removing supports on the steel barricade. While the feds were inside, they'd shoot tear gas from the roof and pepper balls out of murder holes. As people shook the fence back and forth, fireworks were launched up at the roof. But the feds would not stay on the roof for the rest of the night. With a mix of vigorous shaking, rope ties, and liberal use of angle grinders, Portlanders finally toppled over the concrete-reinforced steel fence. The feds were not happy. As they continued to shower the streets with tear gas fired from the roof, squads of federal agents busted out of the courthouse door, launching stun grenades and taking aim with M4 rifles. Protester shield walls quickly surrounded a large portion of the fence that had been knocked over. The feds shot more and more munitions into the crowd, and protesters tossed back canisters of tear gas and fireworks into the federal lines. All the while, the red laser sight on an automatic rifle burned through the clouds of smoke and gas, swiveling across the chests of people in the crowd. Eventually, the gas was too much, even for more than a dozen leaf blowers. Some in the crowd of protesters around the fallen fence had to pull back or suffocate. At this point, our old friends, the Portland Police Bureau, arrived to declare a riot and warn everyone that tear gas was about to be used, which it had been used for hours at that point. As thousands of people started to retreat west under heavy grenade fire, the feds and the Portland police took to the streets to inflict violence. On the sidewalk, medics treated people with giant gashes on their face from metal canisters and foam-tipped riot rounds. Multiple people were shot in the face, just like Donovan LaBella had been all those weeks prior. On July 29th, Oregon Governor Kate Brown announced that the White House, DHS, and her office had come to a deal. The next day, July 30th, the feds were leaving Portland. Of course, that was something of a lie. The same day that Kate made her announcement, acting DHS Secretary Chad Wolf contradicted her claim, saying on Twitter, As I told the governor yesterday, federal law enforcement will remain in Portland until the violent activity towards our federal facilities ends. We are not removing any law enforcement while our facilities and law enforcement remain under attack. Now, Trump also challenged Brown's announcement, tweeting that she must clear out the anarchists and agitators, and that if she doesn't, the federal government will do it for her. We will not be leaving until there is safety. Kate Brown then clarified that the federal removal would be instead a phased withdrawal of federal agents from the Portland downtown area. Their presence would be replaced by Oregon State Police. Brown tweeted that, Our local Oregon State Police officers will be downtown to protect Oregonians' right to free speech and to keep the peace. The number of feds were reduced, but they never actually left Portland. Into August, there were still hundreds of additional federal agents from Customs and Borders Patrol, the Federal Protective Service, and the U.S. Marshals. One law enforcement official told OPB, 
Oregon Public Broadcasting, there has been a small army in Portland, and multiple law enforcement sources told OPB that they expected additional federal forces to remain in the city up and through the general election. With a DHS official saying to OPB, My guess is that the protest climate isn't going to change much between now and the election. The department is reluctant to draw down drastically in a way that would leave us vulnerable. All the feds really did was become less visible. They did temporarily stop responding to protesters, leaving that job to the Oregon State Police and the Portland Police. But they were still in town, and smaller groups of Portland protesters would occasionally meet these feds whenever a protest was held at the local ICE facility. The night of July 30th was the first night without tear gas in weeks, with both feds and Oregon State Police just watching from inside the courthouse. This convinced many exhausted Portlanders that the feds had actually left, In the following days, numbers started to dwindle. The mass of liberals that assembled to fight off Trump's feds called the effort a victory, putting their newly acquired gas masks in the closet and moving on. This turn of events was predictable for some of the more seasoned activists. Here's Koska. I saw so many patterns I saw in Standing Rock being repeated, not just here, but in other pipeline movements and in other other movements, and I saw the exact same, same thing happening in Portland, and so I was telling, I kept saying that it's going to turn into Burning Man in like 10 more days, and and then it kind of was a little bit circusy for a while, but it sucks that, um, that all the, you know, mainstream Americans or mainstream people in the United States thought it was just the feds doing that to us, and if we just get rid of the feds, everything will be fine, but they didn't get rid of the feds, they only got rid of that unit, the rest of the feds and we're still suffering the same amount of same amount of violence. It's just not covered. Yeah. And and it was also disgusting to me because um, you know there were all these um, you know hearings about it and and press about it about this extreme violence from these federal officers. But we were the, the Portland police were using the exact same tactics and violence on us. You know, for years, they've been doing that same thing. The disappearance of the liberal majority suggested that many who showed up for the Fed war were more interested in standing up against Trump than for black lives. Olivia Bacotby Smith, co-chair of the Portland DSA, gives her feelings on the subject. I mean, it's like how we see a lot of other struggles, that because Trump is the face of it, uh, liberals will turn out to protest these things in ways that they wouldn't before. Um, you know, keeping kids in cages at the border. Obama did that. Um, I think that it's actually beneficial to our movement that Trump is now so visibly uh, violent and hateful because it it takes the mask off um, and it's, it radicalizes a lot of people. Um, I think that, yeah, we saw an incredible amount of people, uh, moms, dads, labor, an amazing labor contingent showed up uh, to protest against the federal officers being here um, because Trump sent them. I mean, Obama sent federal officers to Baltimore, to Ferguson, to Standing Rock. We did not see this same sort of mobilization from liberals that we are now seeing because it was Trump. The Fed war was a tremendous story of tragedy and hope. Thousands of liberal moderates took to the streets in a semi-militant way for the first time. Huge numbers of people were directly exposed to the concept of mutual aid and got a glimpse of the power that thousands of assembled human beings can hold. 
But most of that power and potential disappeared when the feds did. The spectacle of federal violence, the military body armor and the tear gas clouds the size of buildings, that all overshadowed the original purpose of the 2020 BLM movement. But it was not all as hopeless as it might seem. For every protester who stopped going out because the feds left, there was another person who had grown more committed to the cause than ever before. Many of them were only halted and continuing to show up due to physical injury or emotional trauma. The end of the Fed War would bring the last of Portland's truly massive 2020 protests, but it did not mark the end of the uprising. For Portland's committed activists, the fight was far from over. Uh, word to grand pops who couldn't fathom the Obamas. I don't hate America, just the man she keeps her promises. 20 teens looking like the 60s, it's crazy. A nationwide deja vu, what my people supposed to do? Go to schools named after the clan founder. Word around town is y'all don't see why we frowning. Native American students forced to learn about Winnow Para Sarah. How is that fair, bruh? Some heroes unsung and some monsters get monuments built for them, but ain't be all a little bit of monster. We crooked. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.